Welcome to Bible Greek VPods Intermediate Greek Program. This is Lesson 5. In this lesson, you will learn the dative case and 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. But first, before we get into our lesson, I want to take a moment to speak about the purpose. Why are we learning Greek, that obsolete language of the New Testament? Well, it's important on several levels. First, as Martin Luther, the great reformer, noted, one cannot truly understand the mind of the author unless he knows the language of the author. So that's one reason. If you really want to know and have a better understanding of what the author is saying, you need to know the author's language. And understanding that language, the better that you understand the language, the more uh, that you will understand his message. As we get into the translation work, there are three things that need to be noted. One is that when we are looking at a text, the first principle is observation. Observation. We are scientists of the word, and to be a scientist of the word means we need to observe. And to be observant of what is being spoken of. And that means identifying all the different characteristics. Identifying the nominative. Identifying the main verb. Identifying the accusative. Identifying those things that bring out the important aspects of the language. In the Greek, the word order uh, is important uh, with respect to emphasis. And so observation is the most important aspect. The second thing is interpretation. Interpretation. And then the third thing is application. This is a spiritual book. We read literally the words, but it touches in a spiritual aspect. Everything we do has a spiritual consequence. Observation. How does the text say it? Interpretation. What does the text say? And application. How does the text apply to us today? Now let's take a look at the dative. The dative is the case of reception. It is translated two or four. And when it has the article, for example, uh, if you're using the word sun, it'll be two or four, the sun. The word dative comes to the English from the Latin datus, meaning to do with giving. The most basic meaning of the dative is to point out the indirect object of the phrase. An indirect object is a noun or noun phrase that names the person or thing that is indirectly affected by the action of the verb. For example, the king sent the city aid. The king is the subject. Sent is the verb. The city is the indirect object, and the direct object is aid. This example does not use the dative as such, but this is a textbook example of an indirect object placed between the verb and the direct object. For the dative, the indirect object is moved to the other side of the direct object. That direct object is the accusative and is referred to as a prepositional phrase. So, an example is, John tossed the ball to me. 
the direct object, you know, identify the accusative case, is the ball. And the indirect object here in this prepositional phrase is the dative to me. So John tossed the ball to me, the indirect object there to me. Now let's take a look at the uses of the dative. First off, we have the dative of indirect object. The dative is translated using the words to or for, and as such, it serves to point out the person or thing the action of the verb is performed on. When the verb is in the active voice, the indirect object receives the direct object. That is, John tossed the ball to me. When the verb is in the passive voice, the indirect object receives the subject of the verb. The ball was tossed to me. That passive voice was. Next we have a dative of advantage or disadvantage. The dative of advantage or disadvantage is used to express personal interest. It indicates the person or thing interested in the action and has a two or four idea. If I say, Ududoke ta beblon moi, it is clear that the giving of the book was in my interest and the sense is not materially changed. If it be said, to biblion moi e grafofe, the book was bought for me, making the idea a personal interest more emphatic. A dative of advantage can be identified by replacing the words to or for with for the benefit of. An example of a dative advantage is 1 Corinthians 6.13. Food is for the stomach. An example of a dative of disadvantage is Matthew 23.31. You testify against yourselves. Next we have the dative of reference. The dative of reference serves to limit a verb or adjective to a particular frame of reference and the dative can be replaced with the words with reference to. For example, Dr. Young lists Romans 6.2 as an example. We have died in reference to sin. Next we have the dative of possession. The dative of possession is used with the noun and instead of the usual word to use belong to or possessed by. Dana and Manti point out that this use is an idiom which has no exact equivalent. An example is found in John 1, 6. The name belonging to him was John. It's a dative of possession. Now let's move to our translation. First John I hope you got your detailed analysis from the website and you have your work and so get your work out and let's take a look at this. My children, I write these things to you in order that you may not sin. It starts off with evocative, technon, little children. And then notice, they're my little children. The personal pronoun is used. And the verb there, the present active indicative first person singular, to write, grapho, I am writing these things in order that you might not 
sin. The second verb there is a second aorist active subjunctive, second person plural. To be without a share, to, uh, to sin, to, to trespass. John calls out, addressing them in the vocative, tekna. And in the New Testament, used as a term of kindly address by teachers to their disciples. First, it should be pointed out that John says in his gospel that those who received the word, God gave them the right to become children of God. These children are born not of any human activity, but of God. That is what John says in his gospel in John 1, 12 and 13. But here, children is in reference to their spiritual maturity, their level of understanding about the things of God. The Christian's understanding relates to his or her daily relationship with Christ and in the sense of understanding his or her maturity in Christ. That is, John means their walk, their daily walk. All Christians are little children with respect to the apostles. So the reference is appropriate. Jesus called the disciples children. He alone could do that, since he alone had a perfect knowledge and walk. In like manner, John, the apostle, uses the possessive personal pronoun moi, my little children. He is acting as the teacher to his disciples. That is how the process is supposed to work. It is a teacher-to-disciple relationship that continues from generation to generation. The Great Commission involves making disciples, and the pattern involves the knowledge of good and evil, and the practice of good and shunning evil. John's use of the first-person verb, grapho, it's a present active indicative, first-person singular, I continue to write indicates a personal desire for him to convince them as children to belong to the family of God and not to sin. This is a henna clause. It's a purpose clause. It states, since you are children, or because you are children, I am writing these things to you for the purpose of letting you know so that you might not sin. The negative aorist subjunctive provides the idea of possibility of not sinning. The constantive aorist regards the action as a whole, taking no interest in the internal workings of the action. But it is possible that if they heed the things written in this letter, they will not sin. They will overcome the sin that they have at hand. The next phrase, And if a certain one sins, we have an advocate with the Father, the righteous Jesus Christ. With the purpose given for writing this letter, the reality of sinful man comes into focus. That is, in the case where one has sinned, he or she has been given an advocate with God the Father. The clause is a third-class condition relating certainty of fulfillment. Or, when we sin, then we have an advocate. The ain, conditional particle, if, in case, with the aorist subjunctive verb, harmatio, to sin, makes this a third-class condition. If a certain one might sin, 
then we possess a legal advocate before God the Father with the righteous one, Jesus Christ. The thing to point out concerning this phrase is that John uses the indefinite pronoun tis, a certain one, some, that's the subject. Then he writes, echomen, a present active indicative first person plural, to have or to hold. We continue to have an advocate. Both the tenses and the definiteness of the pronouns are significant in interpreting this. In the case of anyone who sins, in a generic sense, we as believers collectively have someone close to God the Father to present our case. That perfect advocate, the righteous one, Jesus Christ. The word for advocate, parakletos, is, a, is your accusative, and it's summoned. It means called to one side, a comforter or an advocate. And it has historically had both a legal forensic use and a common use. The basic meaning is one who appears on another's behalf, a mediator, an intercessor, or a helper. When used with the Holy Spirit, the word is used in a general sense and translated with the sense of a helper or comforter. The use seems to be more limited when used with Jesus Christ. Here it serves a legal aspect as an advocate, a lawyer representing our case before God the Father as judge, so the added word didakos, the righteous one. Notice it's an adjective, an accusative adjective, the righteous one, the just one. John adds the descriptive adjective, the righteous one, to the direct object of the phrase, the father, Jesus Christ. In other words, the Father and Jesus Christ are seen as one and the same. The language of the Bible frequently speaks of all the members of the Godhead as if they are one person. So that the word Trinity need not be found in the Bible since the grammar clearly points out the three in one relationship. Notice the basic grammatical construction of the last phrase. The subject is a certain one who might sin. The verb is, he possesses. And the object is, an advocate. The rest of the accusatives all point to who the advocate is, namely the Father and Jesus Christ. Further, it is righteousness of both the Father and Jesus Christ that is most important in the advocate relationship. That righteousness is further developed in the next verse. Verse 2, the first phrase. And he is a propitiation for the sins of us. The reason why the characteristic of the advocate is given as possessing righteousness is because he continues to serve as a propitiation in the place of us. This statement serves an important theological construct. First, the fact is stated that the propitiation is a continuous resource on our behalf as the present tense is used. This is grammatically consistent with man's continuous acts of sin since sin is always and forever covered by Jesus' work on the cross. But more... That death on the cross is past tense and completed 
but its propitiatory effect is seen as both past and present. Propitiation, helasmos, is a nominative masculine singular. It means uh, an appeasing. This is the subject of the phrase and is regarded as an adjective modifying him. It might better be read him, the propitious one. The idea of a propitiation is more of an Old Testament Jewish concept than a Greek one. The word is related in the Greek Old Testament to the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat, or the place of atonement in Exodus 25 and 17, and also in 30, Exodus 37 and 6 and Leviticus 16:14. This is the place where the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement and sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice upon the mercy seat seven times. And the sprinkling of blood signified a satisfaction of the righteous demands of God, covering the sins of the whole nation for one year. What was involved in that important ritual with respect to propitiation was the sin offering and the burnt offering, the two goats and the lot to select the goat that was to be the scapegoat and the other goat for the Lord as the sin offering. The slaughtering of an animal started with the first sin in Genesis 3.21 and it moved to the chosen nation, Israel, in the form of of formal rituals in the Mosaic Law, and finally was seen as complete in the slaughter of the perfect Lamb of God, Jesus Christ himself. He was our substitute, taking our place. His blood was shed as a complete satisfaction of the demands of God. So the rabbi's use of the Greek word halasmas, a satisfaction, the topology of the Old Testament Day of Atonement, is made complete in Jesus Christ our Savior, dying once for all. Paul links propitiation with Christ's righteousness in his great theological work to the Romans like this. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, through faith in Jesus Christ, for all those who believe, for there is no distinction... For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Jesus Christ, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This is to demonstrate His righteousness, because in the forbearance of God He passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. John will further develop the doctrine of the great propitiation in chapter 4 using his typical Jewish spiral reasoning. He links the great propitiation to God's love as he writes in 1 John 4, 9-10. through By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. 
The next important grammatical fact found here is in the preposition peri, which is a two-case preposition. Remember that from first-year Greek? Peri is a two-case preposition. It comes in the accusative or in the genitive. When used with a genitive, it means about, concerning, or on account of. It has the idea of representation and can be translated on behalf of, or for our behalf, or more theologically, in our place. That is, his death and shed blood is seen as a substitute in our place. The picture is made complete by his progressive buildup of words. Jesus is our advocate, our legal representative before the Father. He himself is, or continues to be, the propitious one, a satisfaction. The blood sprinkled upon that mercy seat in the throne room of God. His shed blood continues to cover our sin, and he is there in the very throne room of God, representing us and proclaiming his righteousness, and not our own, is the thing to be brought as evidence before the Father. His blood satisfied the righteous standards, legal standards of God, who said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the Passover lamb that serves as a substitute in our place. The Old Testament topology of the sacrificial lamb is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Salvation, that great rescue from eternal punishment, is found only in the acceptance of that great propitiation. That sprinkling of Jesus' blood that was shed on the cross and is seen as sprinkled upon the mercy seat between the cherubim, whose great protectors of God's holiness and righteousness. The blood is represented as evidence in the very throne room of God, and Jesus Christ is there in his resurrected body, the whole still in his side, visibly present, as physical evidence to the fact. He really did die on the cross, and he really did physically rise from the dead and ascend to the right hand of the Father, continuously offering legal representation for the individual who sins, first in the salvation of the individual, then on a continuous basis as the faithful sins, he acts as priest. Here the term advocate seems to indicate a legal aspect and it involves Jesus' death as that propitiation. The next phrase, but not for our sins only, but also for all the world. This section ends with the most important theological high point. The subject of the extent of the propitiation This answers the question, what does the propitiation, that satisfaction of the shed blood, cover? The answer is, the propitiation is given on behalf of the whole world. The great theological debate over the extent of the death of Christ is settled by John. As I understand the debate, it seems to be more philosophical than grammatical, more emotional than contextual. On the one hand, those who are advocates of limited atonement argue that Christ's death on the cross atoned, or it covered, only the elect. The Reformed position is that 
Christ died for the purpose of actually and certainly saving the elect and the elect only. On the other side of this debate are those who argue that Christ's death was sufficient for all people, but efficient only for the elect. Sufficient for all people, efficient only for the elect. I have been on both sides of this debate and have come to the point where I must use the grammar and precise terminology to settle the debate in my own mind. First, the plain sense of the text is that the propitiation, his shed blood on the mercy seat as a satisfaction of the righteous demands of God. Notice that. Using theologically precise definitions. Propitiation. What is it? His shed blood on the mercy seat as a satisfaction of the righteous demands of God is on our behalf, namely John and the believers he is addressing in this letter. That is, there's a limited group there. But John moves outside this limited group to the world as he adds the contrastive conjunction, but not on our behalf only or alone, signifying he is about to move outside this limited group. It is not only for the select group, but also on behalf of the whole world. The conjunction Allah means but and has its root in the word alas, another of the same kind. By using this word, John means to link the same kind of propitiation for John and the believers to the world, but not just the world in general. But he modifies the cosmos with the word halas, all, whole, or complete, the complete world. Notice the second phrase, is just a chain of genitives. The first phrase contains the subject, literally, he, or him, propitiation. And the verb he is, or he continues to be, it's a state of being. Then the chain of genitives follows, speaking of the extent of the propitiation. Both the believer and the whole world of sinners are included. Now the subject of who is the world. The word for world is cosmos and means the order or the ornament or it's a decoration, the circle of the earth, the inhabitants of the earth. The context used here is man's sin. So the world is restricted to mankind, all of which are sinners who are in need of a savior all of which need to be reconciled back to God. The idea is that Jesus Christ died on the cross and his death served as a propitiation, a satisfaction for the whole of mankind. And that propitiation continues to function in a forensic sense as a means to defend us as we believers sin. He died once and does not need to die again and again. The sin issue is settled and he is seated at the right hand of the Father as physical evidence of the fact. This doctrine teaches that Jesus' death served both a salvation aspect and a continuous sanctification aspect. It is equivalent to the Old Testament concept of the Day of Atonement, where the high priest offers up the sacrifice for the whole nation to cover the sins of the nation for a year. Jesus' death covered the whole world 
but only those who have been born again have eternal life and have an advocate in heaven. The picture is that of Satan in heaven bringing evidence of our sin against us and Jesus saying, but I paid the price for that. He is mine or she is mine. Those the Father have given the Son will not be lost and speaks of eternal life as secure in Christ. The sobering aspect of this is that each sin we commit is presented in heaven and Jesus, our advocate, has to present his case for each occurrence. Do we understand the extent of it all? Will this understanding move us This also speaks of the great patience God has with us. How many times will he have to defend you and me for the same sin? How long will it take before we finally hear the word and convicted by the Spirit and act to put away that sin? Go translate the next section of Scripture and come back for the next lesson.